In this next section of Malachi's prophecy, if you want to take your Bibles and turn there, um, this next section, he's continuing his indictment of the priests, the clergy, (laughs) my kind of guys, with some very sharp words for them, and, and I suspect also for us to hear. 2 1. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. The word the Bible customarily uses to describe this matter of blessings and cursings is the word covenant. A covenant was a binding agreement between two parties filled with promised favor for those who keep the terms of the agreement and serious consequences for those who broke it. As you may know, God entered into a covenant with Israel. He also entered into a covenant with Levi. The responsibilities for the Levites, they were to take care of the sanctuary. They were to properly offer the sacrifices there in the tabernacle, in the temple. And they were to teach the people the Torah. You know, all three of these responsibilities, they have not faithfully discharged And so God says, verse 3, Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with Levi, and it was a covenant of life and peace. And I gave to them, to him, this called for reverence, and he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. This is all going back to the choice of Levi from the sons of Jacob to be uh, the line from which the priest, the priest would come. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. And here are the characteristics of the ideal priest. He says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching you have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Well, back in January, the Cheney children began what can only be described as a daring, some would say death-defying strenuous and difficult project which began at the end or beginning of the new year and continued all the way through the end of the school year here in May. Five months of uh, long, arduous torture. What is it, you, you ask, that they began? 
they began the no sugar diet. <laughs> By the end of the Christmas season, I, like many of you parents, was pretty fed up with all of this sugary sweets that my kids were ingesting. So I posed to them a challenge. I said, if you will enter into this no sugar covenant where you forego all forms of excess sugar, and it was important we made that distinction because, I mean, you know how food manufacturers today, they put sugar in everything. I mean, there's sugar in bread, sugar in spaghetti sauce, sugar in absolutely everything. But I said, all forms of excess sugar, if you just will get rid of the, the candy, the ice cream, the desserts, then I promise you at the end of the school year, 100 blessings. <laughs> 100 George Washingtons will come to bless you. Of my five kids, four of them entered into the No Sugar Covenant. And of those four, three successfully made it to the end. And of those one who did not successfully complete it, but fell off the bandwagon halfway through the third grade, and I promise not to give away her identity. <laughs> I'm happy to report that she renewed the terms of the covenant after she was promised a new dolly <laughs> by the end. I guess you could say this isn't a covenant, properly speaking, as far as the Bible is concerned. You may be aware that usually in the Bible, the covenants come not only with blessings, but curses. In order for this to be a covenant, there, there would have to be some sanctions or stipulations against covenant breaking. So, I mean, I could have charged them a fine every time they broke the covenant. But instead, I just said at the very beginning, the terms are laid out for you. If you break the covenant, the deal's off. And all of the sacrifices you have made in the intervening time will be all for naught. Do you have any idea what book of the Bible most clearly articulates the covenant which Israel entered into with, uh, with the Lord their God? It's the book of Deuteronomy. And if I were to pick one verse out of the book of Deuteronomy that distills the essence of the covenant, it would have to be, without a doubt, it would be Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might. The book of De Deuteronomy has a lot of other rules and regulations in it, but if you were to <clears throat> boil it down to one matter, <clears throat> it is this, that you must truly love me. And when you do, Deuteronomy goes on in chapter 28 to state the blessings of the covenant. All these blessings shall come upon you. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of the, your ground, and the fruit of your cattle. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. On and on in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It, uh, it speaks to the goodness of what it means to live in covenant with God. But then later in the chapter, it also speaks of the curses. And it says, 
If you do not obey the terms of the, con- the covenant, these are the consequences. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the, your ground. Cursed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. The Lord will send confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do. Now here's a question. Was God being unkind or unfair to warn these priests and these people that they were breaking their covenant vows? Of course not. This is what they signed up for. And nobody twisted their arm behind their back and forced them into a covenant with the Lord their God. I mean, nobody forced them into no sugar <laughs> until the end of the school year. And like a good covenant administrator, God regularly reminded the people of the blessings that were attached. I can't tell you the number of times I told Kaya how many packs of baseball cards $100 would buy. And the Lord does that again and again, reminding them of, of the kindness of, of what he will provide. Well, if he's to speak of kindness, shall we fault him for also speaking the curse? Now, I get it. The reason we as modern readers are troubled by a passage like Malachi chapter 2 is because of the, the, the pointedness, the shocking language that he uses in verse 3. Did you realize that verse was in the Bible? I will smear dung all over your faces. I mean... Translate that into the, the common vernacular. <laughs> what is he saying? I'm going to give you, I'm going to put, use your imagination, right? Maybe you can remember the very first time you went fishing and you caught, it was maybe it was with your grandfather or your father, but you, you caught five or six or ten and you have them all in the basket or strung up on the line. And at the end of it, you think, well, now we get to go home and cook the fish. We have a big old fish fry. This is, this is great. Your first time fishing, you don't realize that there's a step before that takes place, isn't there? And uh, if you're a little boy, you think it is so cool to gut the fish. But if you're the rest of us, <laughs> it's one of the most disgusting activities you'll ever do, cutting the intestines out of an animal and discovering that the waste within the animal it is still there in the sacrificial system as best I can tell they would not offer the intestines and the internal organs of the animal in sacrifice on the altar what they were prescribed to do they were to take those take the dung of the sacrifice outside of the camp and burn it out there the picture being that you're supposed to take that which is impure and remove it from the place of absolute purity. Now remember what we established last week. What kind of animals were these people sacrificing to God? It wasn't the prime animal from their flocks. Instead of choosing the the select best as a way to demonstrate that you believe God is worthy of your best, they were taking the blind, the lame, the sickly, you know, the, the goat with a runny nose, all of the junk out of their herds, 
that was what was being sacrificed. The stuff that they wanted to get rid of was what they were offering to the Lord. And the Lord said, he said, you are despising my name. You are defiling my altar. You are defiling my altar. You are making the clean impure. You are offering me nothing but a load of, your worship is nothing but a pile of refuse. And thus, the curses of the covenant come for full circle. He says that if you dishonor my name, then you will be shamed and dishonored. If you give me that which costs you nothing and is a rubbish, then you will have rubbish smeared on your faces. Let's do a quick lesson in church history. Call it Church History 101. The gentleman's name was Marcion, Marcion of Sinope, or Sinope. He was the son of a bishop of the city of Sinope, located in what is today modern, day, the northern part of Turkey, right along the coastline of the Black Sea. Marcion was a shipowner and a shipbuilder back in a time when shipbuilders were in high demand, always with the constant threat of war and the need for commerce. Shipbuilders could make a fortune, and indeed, Marcion made a fortune in that industry. What we know is that in the year 140 AD, he moved to Rome and joined the Church of Rome at that time. He brought to the church an offering of 200,000 sesterces. That was back, uh, back in that time, if you were not part of aristocratic parentage, the highest caste in the social system that you could buy into was the, the rank of equestrian. And in order to do so, it cost you a king's ransom, 400,000 sesterces. He comes into the church at Rome, and he offers an extravagant amount of money to this church. This is a free will offering. Well, what we also know is that Marcion was a devout student of the Bible, who loved to think about theology, who spent much of his time, because he was independently wealthy, no longer working, but debating theology in the streets and in the, you know, in the places. He came up with this idea, and this idea was partly fueled by his anti-Semitic beliefs. He hated Jews. And it was also fueled by his philosophical beliefs. He was a Gnostic. But here's what he thought. He thought that the Old Testament God must be a different God than the one found in the New Testament. The Old Testament God of justice couldn't be the loving father of Jesus Christ. They must be two different gods. One was this cranky, retributive deity, and the other, all sweetness and peaches and cream. And therefore, Marcion concluded Christian churches should not read the Old Testament. The Old Testament was not fit for Christian instruction. Therefore, what he did is he came up with his own canon of Scripture. You say, what were the books of Marcion's canon? They were the epistles of, of Paul, because he believed that Paul was an anti-Semite, and portions of the Gospel of Luke. That was his Bible. 
you ask the question, well, well, what about all of the Old Testament quotations that are included in Paul's letters or even in the Gospel of Luke? What did he do with that? Well, he said that those were later in interpolations of, of um, you know, Jewish people who were, who were trying to um, insert into the, the original writings these unscrupulous words. Not surprisingly, the church found Marcion to be a heretic, And in the year 144 AD, he was excommunicated from the church. And to the church's credit, to their great credit, they gave him back his money. A 200,000 sesterces, we don't want it. This is Judas money. This is blood money. You can keep it. And with his independent fortune, Marcion then left and formed his own church, which proved to be a rival church and even though it, it was uh, deemed to be heretical, nevertheless, Marcionite churches continued in, Christi- in Christendom for s- several centuries thereafter. The good news, and the reason we usually study this in church history, is because, because of Marcion, the church had to confront herself with the question of what books of the Bible did God actually inspire? What books of the Bible really should be part of the Bible. And it was because you know, God, there, we had this, this heretic that she actually had to answer that question. But the reason I gave you this history lesson, you're wondering, why, why have we gone here? My concern is that there is a new Marcionism, a new Marcion that is growing in the Christian church today. I realize that probably hardly any of you have been exposed to that or that's the, when you come in here this morning, that is the least significant thing on your radar. You're not worrying about Marcionism in the 21st century church, but I really do believe it's very dangerous. And I think once I describe it to you, you may have been exposed to it and you didn't actually realize you were. It's not identical to Marcion, but there are strong similarities And here is the form that it takes. Jesus Christ is God. Amen? Amen. He is. Hebrews 1 teaches us that in these last days, God has spoken to us, and he has spoken to us in his Son. Jesus Christ is the perfect expression of God. He is the fullest and final expression of God. God has a face, and it looks like Jesus. God has a personality, and it's the personality of Jesus. Whatever we see in Jesus, that is what God is like. And I agree with every single one of those words. But, but Jesus is nonviolent. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus never curses at people, he never kills his enemies. He lays down his life for everyone. And the God of the Old Testament isn't like that. No, the God of the Old Testament is easily enraged. The God of the Old Testament is petulant and jealous. We know that Jesus would would never, in fact, threaten Moses with death for failing to be circumcised. We know that Jesus wouldn't tell Levites to kill people after the golden calf incident. Or for Achan, Achan, 
in the book of Joshua to be stoned after taking the spoils from Jericho. So as one theologian puts it, the Old Testament is the inspired telling of the story of Israel coming to know their God. And along the way, they made some false assumptions about him. But we know better now. We know Jesus. See, the Old Testament narratives are a primitive theologizing by a people who were trying to get God right, but viewed him through their narrow, violent, tribal mindset. But now we know better, because we know Jesus. Now we have seen God in Jesus, and the primitive is modernized. So, and in essence, it's keep reading your Bible, keep going along till you come to Jesus, because, because God, if you really want to know who God is, he's the, the gentle shepherd of Israel. He's the true God. Now, has anybody, has anybody uh, heard something along those lines before? You will hear more and more of it because that belief has huge implications for what you do with ethics in the 21st century. I'll just say that. It's becoming increasingly popular. And I have a number of problems with this. Number one, Jesus Christ is far more complex than what they're letting on. You take, for instance, near the end of his life in the Olivet Discourse, how he stands outside of the walls of Jericho and he says, he says, I'm like a, I'm like a mother hen who, who longs to bring you up underneath her wings, O city of Jerusalem, and, and protect her. And remember that? Just so, so tender and kind, like a mother hen with, with the brood of her, of her chicks. And then the very next thing he does is he rails about, he forcefully proclaims God's impending violent judgment on their sins and suggests that the one who will bring that final judgment is the Son of Man. Another example, there's so many that I could point to, but there's, there's the moment when he's so tender with the woman who's caught in adultery. He, and he says of this woman and the men surrounding her, you who are sinless, you be the one to throw the first stone. And he's so, he's so gentle with that woman. But then and then the very next episode of his life, he'll be looking at Pharisees and Sadducees, and he will call them sons of Satan. He says, your father is the devil. You are a brood of vipers. A.K.A. You know, back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So I, things are so much more multifaceted than the, the retelling of the Jesus story is there letting on. Uh, and I, I hope you know, I think you know, that on one hand, some of the fiercest statements of judgment in all of the Bible are found on the lips of Jesus. And then on the other hand, some of the most extraordinary statements of mercy and kindness can be found in the Old Testament, on the lips of Yahweh, in the book of Isaiah, and the Psalms. A faithful reading of the Bible recognizes the complexities and just the strange interweaving of mercy and judgment that can be found throughout the Old Testament and throughout Jesus' life, which is, which is far different than the either-or categories many people use. The number two. Here is the crux of the matter. 
Is the Old Testament an accurate and true representation of who God really is? Not merely who the Old Testament people thought him to be, but who the the nature of God, who he actually is in his divine essence. Is he really what he declared himself to be to Moses when he said, Moses, this is my name. Remember what he's, Yahweh, Yahweh, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Is Yahweh both? And is Jesus both? I would say absolutely. You know, one of the challenges of this new Marcionism is the book of Revelation, where they basically have to just erase a lot of the end of the book of Revelation, where it's Jesus who's, who's cloaked in uh, the, the robe that is stained in blood with a sword in his hand, and uh, it's not a pretty sight. Perhaps one of the best places that you can read about the questions posed here is the third chapter of C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. There C.S. Lewis writes, you have asked me for a loving God. Well, you have one, but it is not the love of a drowsy benevolence which wishes you to be happy in your own way. In other words, it's not the, the grandfatherly love which says kids will be kids and live and let live. But you have been given the consuming fire himself. The love that made the worlds. A love as persistent as an artist's love for his work. And as venerable as a father's love for his child. And as jealous and as relentless as a love between spouses. Just as an aside, you know, the Bible does say that he loves this. Just like an artist loves the work that they do, or a father loves, or mother loves the child that she's given born to, or a spouse jealously loves their other spouse. He is angry at anything and anyone that destroys the people in the world that he loves. I think we'd agree, right, that God's capacity for love is considerably greater than ours is by virtue of him being the creator of all things, the artist of all things, and also God's capacity to understand and comprehend the vastness, the extremity of evil in this world. When you have that kind of love matched with that kind of awareness of how messed up this place is, what is the word that you would use to describe that? The Bible's word is wrath. And I, I don't honestly know that wrath, that that word wrath does justice to what God must feel. But back to Lewis. To, to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are. As many people do this. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are or content with this world as it is do you realize what you're doing? You are asking that God should cease to be God. 
and cease to be loving. Because he is what he is, he's a consuming fire himself. His love must, in the nature of things, be purifying. It must burn. It must, he must labor to make us more lovely and make us more pure. And when we want something other than what God wants us to be, we are wanting what in the end will not make us happy. Only when we reach what he wants us to be, only then will our happiness be attained and the broken bone in the universe will be set and the anguish will be all over. I've been paraphrasing, but <laughs> finally, hear this. He says, hear this. God, God wills, God wills your good and therefore God is jealous for your love because it is for your good to love him. If there is a God, then that is what we need, no matter whatever at the moment we think we need. If you struggle with the jealousy of God, this is the money quote, if you struggle with the jealousy of God, it's because he's paying you an intolerable compliment. You are suffering from too much love from God, not too little. Why does God threaten to smear dung on their faces? It's not because he's insulting them. Oh, no. He is paying them an intolerable compliment. They are suffering from too much love, not too little love. What they need more than anything else in the world is to have refuse smeared on their faces to bring them to their senses in, in order to realize. And this is the way the human relations work. If you see people destroying themselves or destroying others and you don't get mad, it's because you are a selfish person or you are a lazy person or you are too absorbed in yourself or you are too cynical to believe that change is actually possible. The more loving a person is, the more ferociously angry they are at whatever harms that which you love. And the greater the harm, the more resolute you will be in opposition to it. There's this tremendous quote by an old Anglican priest by the name of E.H. Gifford. He said, I think I've given you this one before. He said, the more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the liar, the drunkard, and the traitor. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the liar, the drunkard, or the traitor. Because the opposite of love is not anger. Real love always entails anger. The opposite of love is indifference, which in the end is the final form of hate. So let's conclude. I know. We, uh, this is a good spot to land the plane. <laughs> What was the problem with the priests in Malachi's day? It's, I think it's there in verse 8, where he says, instead of teaching the people Torah like you were supposed to, instead you are causing them to, what's the word? Causing them to stumble. Causing them to stumble. Does that echo in your brain at all? It did mine. It made me think of Matthew chapter 18, the words of Jesus Christ, where Jesus says, he says that in this crazy sinful world, many things are bound to come which will cause people 
to stumble, but woe to that man or woman through him through whom those things may come. He said, it would be better for you if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were cast into the sea, into the sea. A, a millstone was what they used to grind grain and it could weigh up to a third or th- uh, three quarters of a ton. <laughs> really big rock. And Jesus Christ says, it would be better for you to have a three quarter ton rock attached to your neck and be at the bottom of the Mediterranean than it would be to face the judgment which is to come. Are those the words of the cranky retributive deity of the Old Testament? (laughs) Those are the words of the Son of God himself. And those are the warnings of love. He started the whole book. He said, what was the first question he asked them at the beginning of these discourses? Or the first thing he said, he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? I have loved you. I have loved you enough to warn you. Maybe you heard the story of the two lumberjacks who came to a particular part of the forest and knew that over the next two weeks, they had to bring down every tree in that part of the forest. They noticed that a mother bird was making a nest in a tree. That's problematic. They didn't want her to do that. They didn't want her to die. So what they did is they took the flat of their axe and and they socked the base of the tree until the tree vibrated enough and the mother bird flew to another tree. (laughs) And so again and again, they socked until she flew, until she flew, and moved until she finally took rest in the rock. She built her nest in a rock. And we know who that rock is. 